What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement so that one day soon we may all see a true proletarian revolution. But until that glorious day comes for us all, I'd like to say thanks for stopping by. Again, my name is Josh, and this is In Defense of Liberation. So you folks are in for a treat. Um, I, yet again, believe it or not, am finding myself with some free time at home where I'm able to sit down and draft up a little bit of an overview for a podcast episode. Um, I'm going to be kind of just rolling and chilling a little bit. Uh, smoking a little blunt, so I hope that you folks enjoy the episode. Uh, to kind of set the tone, we are going to start off the episode with a recording. Uh, thanks so much to uh, Socialism for All on YouTube for recording this uh, audiobook, which is The Two Fascisms by Antonio Gramsci, written in 1921. Um, all of the markup and uh, the translation as well as the source of the document is found on marxists.org shout out to them you can find all kinds of free uh, audiobooks as well as uh, pdfs uh, on marxist.org um, so please check them out but anyways without further ado i'm going to play that off of my phone from youtube and roll this blunt so hopefully it doesn't sound too terrible i might stop it at certain points if i feel interested in making a point but i have quite an episode drafted up so i might just go and let this thing basically run it's uh it's going to be eight minutes and 26 seconds long so uh without further ado here you are this is an audiobook of the two fascisms by gramsci italian communist from 1921 this was right around the time of the rise of fascism after World War II and the failed revolution of 1919, after which the bourgeois establishment said, hey, we need to... I think he meant World War One, but anyways. ...do something to stop any future workers' revolutions from happening, and that answer was fascism. So this text was first published in Ordine Nuovo, 25 August 1921, translated for Marxist's Internet Archive by Ben W. And thanks, as usual, to the Marxist's Internet Archive oh, at Marxists.org for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts and translations. They're doing great work. Please support them and check them out. So let's get into the text. The crisis of fascism, about whose origins and causes so much is now being written, can easily be explained by a serious examination of the evolution of the fascist movement itself. The fasci di combattimento were born in the aftermath of the war, World War I. They were imbued yeah, with the petty bourgeois character of the various veterans associations which arose at that time. Due to their trenchant opposition to the socialist movement, they obtained the support of the capitalists and the authorities. This aspect of the fasci was inherited in part from the conflict between the Socialist Party and the, quote, interventionist associations during the war years. They emerged during the same period when the rural landowners were feeling the need to create a white guard to tackle the growing workers' organizations. 
comment. Uh, the white guard here, white is the color of counter-revolution. If red is the color of labor, socialism, and communism, white is the color of counter-revolution. Uh, whenever there's a socialist revolution, there usually is a countervailing force from the capitalists to try to reprivatize things. That would be the white guard. Okay. The gangs that were already organized and armed by the big landowners soon adopted the label fasci for themselves too. With their subsequent development, these gangs would acquire their own distinct character as a white guard of capitalism against the class organs of the proletariat. Fascism still conserves this trait of its origins, but until very recently, the fervor of the armed offensive kept a lid on the tensions between the urban cadre who are predominantly petty bourgeois, orientated on parliament and collaborationist, and the rural cadre, which consist of the big and medium landowners and their tenant farmers. These rural groups are engaged in a fight against the poor peasants and their organizations. They are acutely anti-union and reactionary, and they have far more faith in direct armed action than in the authority of the state and the efficacy of parliament. In the agricultural regions, Emilia, Toscana, Veneto, and Umbria, fascism has achieved its greatest development. There, with the financial support of the capitalists and the protection of the civil and military authorities, it has attained a power without limits. The ruthless offensive against the class organs of the proletariat has served the capitalists well. In the course of a year, they've seen all the apparatus of the socialist unions smashed and rendered impotent. However, this offensive has also had another effect. It is clear that the escalating violence has provoked a widespread hostility towards fascism among the middle and working classes. The episodes in Sarzana, Treviso, Viterbo, and Rocastrada profoundly shook the fascist cadre in the cities, personified in Mussolini, who began to see a danger in the exclusively negative tactics of the fasci in the agricultural regions. However, it is also true that these tactics have already borne excellent fruit, dragging the Socialist Party onto a terrain of compromise and making them favorable to collaboration in the country and in Parliament. From this point on, the latent tensions between the rural and urban fascist cadre began to manifest themselves in full force. The urban collaborationist cadre believed they had now reached their objective. They felt the Socialist Party had abandoned class intransigence, and now these cadre hurried to make their victory official with the pacification pact. But the agrarian capitalists could not renounce the sole tactic that assured them the, quote, free exploitation of the peasant class, the tactic that was ridding them of the inconvenience of strikes and workers' organizations. All the arguments currently raging in the fascist camp between those who are for and those who are against the pacification pact come down to this fundamental rift. Its origins are rooted in those of the fascist movement itself. The claims of the Italian socialists to have provoked the split in the fascists' ranks with their skillful politics of compromise merely serve to confirm the socialists' demagogy. In reality, the crisis of fascism is not new. It has always existed. Once the contingent reasons that maintained the unity of these anti-proletarian groups ceased, it was inevitable that their latent disagreements would quickly flare up.
The crisis, therefore, is nothing other than the clarification of pre-existing tendencies. This crisis will provoke a split among the fascists. The parliamentary faction, headed by Mussolini, and based on the middle classes, white-collar workers, shopkeepers, and small manufacturers, will attempt to organize these milieu politically. It will, of necessity, move toward a collaboration with the socialists and the popolari. The intransigent rural faction that expresses the need for the direct and armed defense of the agrarian capitalists' interests will continue to carry out their characteristic anti-proletarian actions. For this faction, the most important in regard to the working class, the truce acclaimed as a victory by the socialists will be worthless. The crisis will only signal the departure from the movement of a petty bourgeois faction that has tried in vain to justify fascism with a general political party program. But fascism, the genuine article that the peasants and workers of Emilia, Veneto, and Tuscany know through their own painful experiences of the last two years of white terror, will continue, although perhaps under a different name. There is now a lull in hostilities due to the discord within the fascist camp. The task of revolutionary workers and peasants is to take advantage of this pause, to instill in the oppressed and defenseless masses a clear understanding of the true state of the class struggle and the means necessary to defeat the swaggering capitalist reaction. So that, <clears throat> thank you again to the socialist for all project on youtube for that amazing recording um so i wanted to uh use this piece just as a little intro to try to begin to understand the topics which we're going to be discussing in today's episode which are um fascism far-right nationalism global capitalism and the history of America. Um, America spelt with three Ks, of course, AKA the United States. So before we really get into discussing too, too much into depth about fascism, let's go into a little history of America because I think that's crucial to understanding some of the different forces at play and also uh, kind of understanding the uh, racist settler colonial nature uh, which lends itself perfectly to fascism here here or here in the United States um, and uh, maybe discuss that out a little bit so of course we know that what we know is America um, so from South America up through to um, the Arctic and all the land masses and forms that we consider America, um, this really found its origin uh, as a uh, colonized land in the uh, colonization of the Caribbean of Central and South America, and then of North America. Uh, this ultimately began uh, in the, in a lot of cases, it began in the late 1300s through to the 1400s, um, when groups such as the Catholic Church, um, the British East India Company, 
uh, and the Dutch East India Trading Company, which come much, much later, among other groups, uh, sought out land, resources, labor forces, and especially um, conquerable, uh, conquerable land was the main driving force behind a lot of colonization. Um, and they found it. Now, the Spanish Inquisition uh, and the drive for uh, not simply a shared world, but a world for the colonizers uh, found a lot of its strength and a lot of its foundation uh, in not only the necessity for security and, f and freedom for those groups, but also in the racial superiority, which we now normally call things like blood quantum, as well as the uh, religious superiority combined with economic superiority. You have the need for land and security, a lust for freedom, meaning really free land to do whatever the fuck you want on, combined with eventual discovery of gold, led to a culmination of the capitalist, colonial, white supremacist, and patriarchal systems. Each one of these is somewhat contained within the other, right? The process and the wealth and power that, it, that the uh, colonization of the world brought Spain, England, the Dutch, the French, and the uh, others among uh, the colonizers is completely unignorable. And it all really solidified itself in a system of global exploitation. <clears throat> so, coming out of the more feudal days, these colonizers were looking for, again, new land, resources, labor forces, and markets to exploit. Now that in many of these countries they were seeking new forms of society, new political economic structures, a lot of colonizers began uh, not simply just colonizing anymore, but eventually they began settling. They began taking over the land, not just for the sake of sending resources and enslaved labor back to um, their uh, imperial overlords, they began to actually build quote-unquote new societies in these already uh, sovereign lands across the world. Excuse me, hitting the blunt. This is what became known as, uh, many of us know, settler colonialism. Where, again, rather than... Uh, Excuse me, where am I here in this? Rather than um, 
oh jeez, where is this? Rather than uh, creating and living within uh, societies where supervision and direct support of imperialists were necessary, these settlers began to develop uh, encampments known as settlements. They began to develop things like mines, uh, trade markets. They began to set up ports. They began to set up uh, agricultural land. They began to trade in human beings. And they began to <coughs> steal the labor and the knowledge of these uh, enslaved folks for the benefit of the slave owners. Um, so that really the history of the United States is one of uh, attempting to build a new society on top of an already existing one. You can't just do that out of pure will, right? You need some kind of force to either directly remove the already existing people and societies either do that force them to assimilate into your own new developing society or as we know especially here in the united states and uh really you know what i i don't even need to specify that trigger warning to my indigenous comrades <clears throat> As we know, the history of colonization is the history of extermination, of the massacring of men, women, and children, uh, and genocidal actions against indigenous communities. Uh, if neither assimilation nor removal worked, which were both tried here in the U.S., then extermination, genocide, became the policy of the state. Uh, one uh, real clear example that you can't deny the nature of the Seminole Wars here in the United States. A 30-year war that we barely ever hear about where uh, I think it was it was either Jackson or Jefferson. I can't remember which one, but uh, the Seminole uh, uh, nations within uh, Florida um, and I believe that Seminole is actually like the loose colonizer word for the uh, cultures and uh, groups that live there. So excuse my ignorance on that. I can um, even Google that in the meantime. But the encampments of, um, or excuse me, the lands of these people uh, oftentimes were not just simply um native american or indig indigenous folks uh they were also oftentimes uh former enslaved folks who ran away and were taken in by these communities um that was pretty common to uh the process of settler colonialism in the early days um an example might be uh, during the time of Bacon's Rebellion in uh, the Virginia colony, you have such mass poverty that so many of the settlers began running away to indigenous communities hoping that they would take them in. 
because speaking historically, uh, indigenous cultures were far more and always will be far more accepting, uh, far more supporting of uh, all people, regardless of who they are, than any, you know, society based on colonization. That much shouldn't be too difficult to understand. But for 30 years, again, either Jackson or Jefferson, can't remember who, um, again, can even Google that right now. Um, he just sent in uh, the militias to just absolutely massacre people. Um, and I, excuse me, so actually hostilities kind of started around 1816 in the area and really continued all the way on through past 1858. That's a fucking long time. That, that shows you that the true solidarity and the true uh, revolutionary resistance that was found in these communities uh, is something that we must be learning from and ultimately organizing ourselves uh, with and alongside of and in the stead of indigenous communities even today. That much cannot uh, be ignored or set aside. That's not a question. Um, so that's kind of like the, the overall, you know, uh, beginning history. Then, of course, you have what we know as the American Revolution in 1776, which many folks would consider uh, actually a counter-revolution of uh, reactionary and nationalistic uh, forces within society against the rising tide of populist and... Um, more uh, communal-based needs for the masses of uh, settlers, for the masses of um, people within society who weren't coming over uh, like Francis Bacon or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or, um, you know, these other people who came to America and made within America huge uh, huge amounts of wealth. This wasn't the case for everyone. So in 1776, really as far back as 1763, if not sooner, you have all throughout the colonies these different reactionary forces um, taking power um, and uh, fighting back against, again, the more populist um forces within society even though some of these people i mean george washington at the time wouldn't have been considered necessarily a populist but he ran on a pop well he ran on a populist ticket his actions <laughs> you know how fucked up the fucking american electoral system has you when you're talking like this but anyways his leadership of the military expeditions and his uh, political rhetoric was of a populist nature, right? Um, he fought for the people, supposedly, even though at the end of the day, what that really meant was he fought for the people's rights to build a society so that he and all the wealthy people could get really rich and powerful. Um, but so, you know, what we know as the Revolution of 1776 was a response to also... 
um, the demands of the British and French colonial powers uh, to cease some of the things that the uh, settlers were doing. Uh, for example, the uh, want for manifest destiny to expand to the West. Um, that was fought by the British, um, the, uh, for whatever reason, I think mostly just because of already existing trade and military agreements with the French and with the Spanish, but also probably due to a lot of the British colonial powers to colonize and capitalize on the resources and power, um, there themselves. But so the British and the French governments also in Canada made demands to, <coughs> for example, um, although they weren't necessarily entirely against slavery, um, the British and French governments, um, you do see a lot of accounts in letters between uh, government officials and uh, kind of like popular leaders within society discussing kind of the abhorrent nature of slavery within America and how it uh, puts a stain. This, this is, uh, let me take a moment here to just say that when the British and the French governments spoke illy of the settler colonial projects which were developing in North America, same from when the Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese spoke, you know, poorly of the Central and Southern American settler colonial projects. It wasn't from a p truly, like, materialistically different perspective. It's from an idealistic perspective. The French, British, and all those surrounding governments, they wanted to pretend that they were the truest of the true uh, liberal democracies. They wanted to believe that they were the enlightened. They were building a better and pure uh, society based on freedom and liberty and shit. So when America, and again, let us remember that when we use this term, speaking about the United States, we specify the America spelt with three Ks. When America did the things that it was doing, and the, the colonists and the settler colonial uh, projects developed as they did. The British and French didn't like what it made them have to think about the fact that democracy and liberal bourgeois bullshit was just that, bullshit. They didn't want to have to think about the fact that, you know, this is what a supposed democratic system is allowing. And they didn't want it to be a stain on democracy either. You know, they called themselves democratic. The settlers called themselves democratic. And so if these people can be democratic and they can do the things that they're doing, well, then that just looks bad on other governments who call themselves democratic. I don't know that it was necessarily the leading cause for why they were, you know, especially upset with America. I probably hit it on the head with uh, uh, the kind of economic side where they probably wanted the wealth and resources to come themselves. But it, it did play a role. 
right? It, we have to understand how ideology plays a role within the masses, too, because, you know, for example, ideas are a powerful force which drive people to do incredible things. Um, religious extremism, um, revolutions, all kinds of different actions are had based on ideas, uh, mass shootings, right? Um, all these things are done on ideas, uh, mostly also on actions and material gains that these individuals feel that might come to them, but also ideas play a huge role. So anyways, back to the whole quote unquote revolution of sorts, uh, which was mostly a, a counter revolution uh, to a lot of democratic and populist uh, rights being, uh, you know, kind of demanded by people. <sighs> but soon to come, just as a little uh, reference point for kind of the parallel development of the world. So you got the revolution, uh, what is which is usually called the revolution of 1776, <sighs> really uh, consolidates power uh, with the ratification of the Constitution, which, oh, geez, my fucking American history teacher would be so displeased with me um but geez louise let me try to find it here anyways the ratification of the u.s constitution which happened sometime i think it's 1783 um holy shit i'm high <laughs> let me google that actually just let me take this moment to google this my battery is running low. Shit. All right. Um, why is it not just telling me? 1789. Fuck. Um, that was when the Bill of Rights was actually sent to the states for ratification. So I don't fucking know. Probably sometime in the fucking 1790s. But anyways, when that shit happened, right, when the ratification of the Constitution actually happened, that's really when you would consider, like, the end of the revolution in the United States. So, this supposed revolution um, was capable of consolidating power in the hands of these wealthy bourgeois elites. Uh, similar things happened in France and in England, of course. Um, now, it's important to understand that these bourgeois democratic gains are uh, historically revolutionary meaning that in comparison to the power relations which exist under feudalism um and the class nature of the mode of production we see a revolutionary development uh in the overall amount of people who are benefiting from society right from a feudalist society absolutist society of kings and queens now you got a parliament now you got uh an executive and a legislative and a judicial branch here in the uh united states a parliament elsewhere in the world but it's normally referred to as like parliamentarian 
government. So <clears throat> it plays a revolutionary role historically. This is important because, uh, for example, revolutions like the French Revolution uh, really were ideologically influential on folks like Marx and Engels. And these revolutions helped them to understand uh, why revolutions were revolutionary in nature and uh, ultimately served as uh, a really foundational event to their theories of class struggle. Um, we've talked about class struggle before on the show, so feel free to check out any episode that has class struggle in the title. But in the 18 and 1900s, the domination of the wealthy white elites uh, constituted both a white supremacist and a colonial empire, but it began to take on the role of a capitalist bourgeois empire as capitalism really consolidated within the U.S. Because uh, for those of you who don't really realize this, um, the U.S. was always a capitalist uh, project, even from as early as uh, 1492. I mean, you have a uh, merchant sailor, and that's, again, let, let us remember, let me take a hard pause here. 1492 had very little, if nothing, to do with the foundation of the United States colonial project. But it's oftentimes seen as one of the earliest encounters with Europe on the American continent from North America to South America, uh, which was uh, truly influential in the foundation, uh, eventually, of what they considered the New World, of which North America was a part we have to be clear to understand history to not just separate it for the sake of atomizing, but separating for the sake of paralleling, as I did before, to show uh, how in a similar time period, the way in which the Haitian uh, um, world was developing with their revolution. Um, Arguably, some would call almost, uh, you know, a, a revolution in the proletarian sense, except, you know, of course, based on most Marxist definition of the proletariat, uh, Haiti didn't technically constitute that. But, you know, this is one of those points where it's like really not important to specify because we're not in a communist party right now talking about this and developing ideological theory. Um, but anyways, I'm rambling now because I'm super stoned. <laughs> um, but so the consolidation of capitalism, oh, that's what I wanted to say. So the founding of the United States was by the Virginia Company. Uh, Elaine Brown, former chair, uh, person of the Oakland chapter of the Black Panther Party, makes clear uh, to remember this, um, uh, so the Virginia Company of London, uh, also known as the London Company, was a division of the Virginia Company with the responsibility for colonizing the East Coast of America. Um, it was a joint stock company chartered by King James I in 1606 and officially it was established to develop a colony in North America. Uh, the venture allowed for the crown to reap the benefits of colonization through natural resources, new markets for English goods, as well as leverage 
leverage against the Spanish without bearing the costs themselves. So they set up a corporation which then colonized the United States. The United States was from its very, you know, founding a capitalist corporate state. Um, do not forget it. It's also a settler colonial state, but we have to understand the uh, intersection between the two and the dialectical relationship that developed between also um, the uh, nationalistic, white supremacist, uh, and even some might say fascistic uh, nature and foundation of the U.S. Uh, state. So anyways, um, this is how the U.S. empire began to dominate and maintain control uh, and eventually become one of the most influential uh, and uh, oppressive world powers. Um, the U.S. also... Um, I will hit on this later on. Uh, we're going to kind of flow into now a discussion on fascism and far-right nationalism. Uh, just to kind of, I mean, the history from the 1800s forward is um, America kind of springboards and develops from a colonial project itself into a colonizing project and then of course that shift from a colonial empire which is based on the physical domination usually in a lot of cases through settler colonialism settlerism of the natural resources new markets and labor force you also have the development of imperialism, the difference being now these uh, resources and things are collected by the colonial empire, right? So it, it begins to constitute itself as an empire. You have the Roman Empire, which does this, the British Empire, which does this, the resources and the products which they are built into the wealth that's gained by the labor force as well as the ownership of the markets is not only the sole things that that empire is exporting now that empire is also exporting finance capital which is capital that is lo it's loans finance capital the easiest way for me because i don't have a great grasp on it yet i'm i'm really trying to spend a lot of time reading other things right now but um finance capital itself it, it, an easy way to understand it is loans like the u.s state uh throughout and up until world war one uh owned a major stock in all the indians industries bank excuse me the industries the banks and the uh the markets as well as the production of commodities in countries like Germany in Russia and was beginning to do so also in uh, South America and in Africa as well as in Asia more into uh, well yeah up until World War One 
Lenin's imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, is many things, but it is uh, one of one of the things which it aims to do is argue uh, that the First World War, the Great War, as it was called then, um, was a natural development of capitalism because capitalism has a natural tendency towards monopoly. Monopoly capitalism is the foundational step towards imperialism. Monopoly, monopoly capitalism is when... Uh, let me just hit a fat Google so I don't have to sit here and try to define this to you, but... Um, How's everyone doing? I hope, uh, I'm typing on Google right now. I hope the episode is decent enough. Um, but, uh, I, um, I got pretty stoned and I wasn't meaning to, <laughs> but I'm pretty happy about it. So anyways, uh, quick little definition here. Um, The, uh, oh, what the fuck? This took me to the wrong thing. So the definition here I have is of state monopoly capitalism. It says, the theory of state monopoly capitalism was initially Marxist theorist popularized after World War One. Lenin had claimed in 1916 that World War One had transformed the laissez-faire capitalism into monopoly capitalism, but he did not publish any extensive theory about the topic. The term refers to... What, why does it say that's weird that's not true <laughs> this is a wikipedia definition that i just got on google but that's just plainly not true uh the term refers to an environment where the state intervenes in the economy to protect a larger monopolistic or oligopolistic jesus fucking economists coming up with stupid words to just say really nonsensical things but monopolistic or oligopolistic business from threats as conceived by lenin in his pamphlet of the same name the theory aims to describe the final historical stage of capitalism of which he believed the imperialism of that time to be the highest expression occasionally the concept also imperials in neo-trotskyist theories of state capitalism as well as in libertarian anti-state theories, the analysis made is usually identical to its main features, but very different political conclusions are drawn from it. So monopoly capitalism, unfortunately, uh, was not 100% perfectly defined in that definition. But I think uh, at least to understand it, we must say that monopoly capitalism is uh, when the capitalist entities uh, consolidate and centralize themselves so rather than having different groups and entities which own different parts of uh, production, so for example, rather than having one group that owns the oil, another group that owns the oil refinery, another group which owns the transportation companies, and another group which owns the products which are developed with that oil, you have one group which through uh, you know different levels of ownership uh, concentrates and consolidates all of those different fields under its own ownership and monopolizes. Um, so I hope that made a little sense. 
But anyways, now that I've been rambling for a while, let's maybe make a clean transition to a discussion on fascism and far-right nationalism within the U.S. So, to start, I'm going to give the, although I don't always like, uh, you know, kind of like Webster dictionary definitions, I do like using them to kind of uh, jump off of as a framework. So I want to define both nationalism and fascism. Um, so nationalism, there's a few definitions here. So first, the belief that a particular group, cultural or ethnic, constitutes a distinct people uh, deserving of political self-determination. Uh, two, devotion, especially excessive or undiscriminating devotion to the interests or culture of a particular nation state. Three, the belief that nations will benefit from acting independently rather than collectively. Or four, uh, this one's a little bit longer of a definition. Nationalism is an idea and movement that holds that the nation should be congruent with the state as a movement, nationalism tends to promote the interests of a particular nation, especially with the aim of gaining and maintaining the nation's sovereignty over its homeland. So those are some definitions of nationalism. Uh, I'm not saying any of them are perfect or that any one is the correct one, but those are some definitions of nationalism. Here's some definitions of fascism. A system of government marked by centralization of authority under a dictator, a capitalist economy subject to stringent government controls, violent suppression of the opposition, and typically a policy of belligerent nationalism and racism. Uh, a political philosophy or movement based on or adv advocating such a system of government Oppressive dictatorial control, uh, or another long one here. Fascism is a form of far-right authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society and of the economy, which came to prominence in the early 20th century Europe. <clears throat> Uh, so under here, there's also a little note uh, that says fascism and nationalism have developed in nations across the world as reactions to popular uprisings and revolutions uh, such as uh, or against colonialism, imperialism, capitalism and globalization. In Italy, Spain and Germany, the workers were demanding a new society. They were demanding justice for the crimes of their government, and just like the wealthy peasants in Russia, Poland, Ukraine, and China rose up against peasants and poor folks who were trying to take back land and who demanded new class relations, the fascists began to grow their forces within the cities and urban areas to defend the capitalists militaries and bourgeois state against the rising tide of class struggle um, so there are some notes on nationalism and fascism to kind of frame our conversation going forward but yeah there's kind of like <clears throat> it, it's really no secret that 
the driving some of the driving forces behind the creation of the United States as a uh, nation state was whether explicitly or not uh, white supremacy uh, along with capitalism um, and uh, settler colonialism but basically all non-anglo-saxon uh quote unquote undesirables were subject to different social economic and political discrimination and abuse the uh the separation between like political and civil rights is kind of an example of that uh as to like how even while supposedly giving more freedoms to people uh, and especially oppressed groups within society, uh, the empire is actually intent on taking more away. For, like an example being, uh, if you get a felony um, in this country, like you're supposedly like now you're this free citizen as a uh, you know let's say for example a black person in the United States. You're uh, once you have the civil rights. Uh, legislation which is passed in the 60s you're supposedly this you know really they they draft the law so perfectly and we're going to talk about that in a second but they draft the law so perfectly to make it so that you're an equal but separate non-citizen basically um because that's kind of like the separation between like true uh like citizen political rights and then like quote unquote civil rights um so for example like when you get a felony even though you're supposedly this free person in this free liberal society it means you can't have any more rights basically you can't vote you can't run for office uh folks who immigrate to this country uh have to deal with so many laws uh, which make it almost impossible for people to, A, actually become a naturalized citizen. It's so expensive, y'all. It's so expensive. And it also, you know, in that sense, you can't make any mistakes. You can't get in trouble with the cops. Uh, you have folks in this country who are kicked out for grades, um, like DACA and shit like that. But basically, you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time even and be deported. Uh, my homie Deported Artist, um, shouts out to him, go check out Deported Artist on Instagram, um, he came on the show a while ago and we talked about the many different ways that folks basically just get caught in a bad situation because you're in a country which doesn't really want you and is looking for an opportunity to kick you out and folks find themselves in positions where they get kicked out and they didn't do shit, um, and it's also illegal stolen land. So it's like, all right, y'all, maybe get off your high horse. But anyways, you know, the laws are set up to punish those people. Um, and the state really wants to punish them for needing or trying to find ways to survive. Like, that's really what it is. Um, when you're talking about things like crime, that's all it really amounts to um, is like, you know, you're stuck in a situation where... For example, you're going hungry, your child's going to die, and you take food from a market, you're a criminal. Um, but this is only necessary 
because the criminal system did not properly provide for the people of the society. And, you know, you have a market full of food, yet you, you tell people they can't have any. And people need to eat. Every single human being on this earth, my community fridge that I help run, our slogan is hashtag everybody eats because as human beings, everybody requires food. Everybody requires water. Everybody requires shelter, clothing, health care. These things are all what, what keep a happy, healthy, and safe person. And if you have a, a society made of happy, healthy, safe people, you build a happy, healthy, safe, secure society. So anyways, not only do they then criminalize survivability, but they also attack the groups who try to be a light within their community and help with those needs. Examples are uh, a few but not limited to the Crips, the Bloods, the Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, AIM, the American uh, Indian Movement, and other groups who were criminalized. They had members exiled from the country. You have folks like uh, um, Mumia. Oh, geez, I really do apologize. I should know Comrade's name. Um, Mumia Abu Jamal. Um, you have folks... Uh, like Jaleel Muntakim, who just got out recently, who spend 30, 40, 50 years fucking behind bars. And there's hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, I've mentioned this time and time again, but, you know, I got to keep mentioning, the U.S. was found guilty by the International Tribunal of Human Rights Abuses against indigenous black, brown people. Uh, they were found guilty of genocide uh, by that that uh foundation uh took the name of the international tribunal of uh human rights abuses against black brown and indigenous people um it was uh co-founded by the spirit of mandela among other organizations and activists um and one of the criteria of genocide there was five there was police killings mass incarceration public health uh, racism, meaning, you know, some of the most uh, awful public health situations are constantly uh, found in uh, places where only usually black, brown, and indigenous people live because the proper resources are not allocated to those communities. Um, even though the proper resources exist, they're just sitting in the white suburbs. Um, you also have environmental racism, the same thing with like, for example, toxic waste dumps, air pollution, etc. Um, this is commonly found in, uh, urban communities, which are oftentimes, uh, packed with oppressed and marginalized groups, um, because they are redlined 
and overexploited to a point where these are the only communities where the society uh, still allows them to live. And even now, today, as we are seeing as a trend, gentrification is taking away even these communities. Um, so this is something that we have to really recognize. But the fifth, the fifth criterion is political imprisonment, which uh, is especially bad with these communities because what they'll do is they'll take people like Leonard Peltier and uh, um, others like Mumia Abu Jamal or Jalil Muntakim and lock them up from like, like, twenties, thirties, all the way to like sixties, seventies, if not their whole life. They'll straight up execute them too. Um, and that's political assassination. Um, that's class war. That is class struggle. We have to understand that as a part of the class struggle. That's the bourgeois saying, nuh-uh. We're not going to let you proletariat motherfuckers up in here. We're not going to let you folks talk about revolution. We're not going to talk. let you folks talk about black liberation. We're not going to let you folks talk about decolonization and land back and indigenous sovereignty. We're not going to let you all talk about that because, you know what? Uh, the bourgeois capitalist uh, uh, state uh, is real comfy. It's real comfy, and it's going to do anything it can to keep up the status quo. So, anyways, to kind of finish off here, the U.S. state as it exists today, the state being the organized apparatus by which one class oppresses the, the other, what we commonly understand as the government, but the state is also, let us not forget, the military, the police, the education, the economy, the church, right? That's all the state. Um, anyways, the U.S. state is an entity entirely supported by the history of the U.S. empire. Uh, the way it formed itself, the laws, it's written, it's police, it's military its immigration patrol and policies are all examples of reactionary, abusive, and nationalistic uh, actions and oppression. Um, real quick, I, uh, I want to go into this a little bit more once I finish the, finish the book, but I'm reading a book called uh, Hitler's American Model. Uh, by James Q. Whitman, where he traces the many examples of how uh, U.S. legal code, whether it be immigration policies, the extermination campaign of the indigenous communities, Jim Crow, South, uh, segregation laws, uh, lynch laws, quota acts, Chinese intern or Chinese exclusion acts, uh, etc., IQ tests, aptitude tests, physical tests, uh, the kicking out of the uh, disabled uh, and quote-unquote undesired groups from outside of the Anglo-Saxon world um, was foundational to the formation of the uh, National Socialist Party's uh, legal code once they took power uh, known uh, oftentimes as uh, the Nuremberg or the Nuremberg Laws, which is what we commonly refer to the beginning three laws, which were the uh, Nazi flag, the swastika becoming the official emblem of Nazi Germany. The second being the citizenship laws and what dictates the difference between a citizen or a national 
a um, oh shit, it's a citizen, a national, and a oh I don't remember what the third, but you basically have your citizen, your naturalized citizen, and your non-citizens, um, and then the third being the blood law, um, the purity of blood. All of that found so much inspiration in the many ways in which the U.S. state developed itself. Um, so this really is important because fascism has always been and will always be a foundational uh, and natural tendency of not simply the United States, but all capitalist bourgeois societies. Because in a, <clears throat> a, a quick little brief summation really what fascism is is a system which a capitalist state takes in crisis by tightening its grip on the economy the society and the state apparatus it stands without allowing oppositional groups it oftentimes finds racial or national inspiration and it is wielded by the ruling class as an attempt to do the opposite version of class war class struggle that the proletariat requires basically what fascism is is a final solution for the class struggle in favor of the oppressors. So, although as communists we want to advocate for a broad class struggle, right? The reason why we want to talk about the particularities of the U.S. empire is really because as the Germans did in the 1840s through the 1880s, as the Russians did from the 1870s to the 1990s, as the Cubans, the uh, Nicaraguans, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, the uh, different groups throughout society who have wielded Marxism or Marxism-Leninism or Marxism-Leninism-Maoism, depending on, you know, how particular we want to get in some of the, for example, active struggles that are taking place now in the Philippines. Um, all of these examples are... Cru it's crucial to these forces within these countries to understand the particularities of their situation to wield and capitalize upon the specific nature of their own environment. If you, for an example, are waging war, you're going to have different strategy and different tactics for different battles, whether they're on land or whether they're on sea, whether they're in a siege or a uh, you know a defensive encirclement 
um, whether it is uh, airstrike or a nuclear uh, launch, there are strategies and tactics which are particular to the given circumstances. The same is important when we're talking about revolutionary Marxism and scientific socialism. We have to uh, understand the particular and the universal of our given situations because if we wage class struggle brick by brick dotting the i's and crossing the t's exactly like the russians did in 1917 believe it or not we're probably not going to succeed <clears throat> does that mean then that we must not uh give two fucking shits about anything that happened from the 1870s through uh, to the October Revolution in this country. No, every single revolution, every single proletariat revolution especially, uh, it is necessary to learn the examples of uh, and to understand the history of it. But again, we want to understand the more extracurricular parts of the U.S. empire, such as white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, uh, and settler colonialism as foundational to the nature of this nation because it was literally founded by a group who came over, stole the land, murdered, raped, pillaged, and pirated everything, uh, destroyed indigenous communities, enslaved Africans, uh, used them as free and disposable labor, abused and destroyed everything that either one of these groups ever had to themselves and ever would be for a very long time, uh, and all of this, of course, and had to be uh, supported by both ideological and legal forms of support, as well as economic, political, and social uh, forms of support. Uh, it also required a incredibly powerful force, which has uh, been capable of maintaining its supremacy for 226 years. We have been at, in an active conflict in the United States, uh, which is a reign of terror that the U.S. and its forces have had over the world through brutal repression of minorities and exploited people, which has not gone undocumented. It is a global catastrophe, which requires a global revolutionary movement. We need in this country not simply a force which can wage a uh, you know what I don't know if I want to take that we need an internationalist struggle we need a struggle in this country which builds solidarity with international struggles all around the world which builds itself to be an international multipolar society where no group is truly the dominant force in the world um if we want something like that in this country, we really have to get going. And we have to be, you know, <clears throat> I, um, I don't always like talking about this because it sounds almost elitist, uh, especially coming out of white cisgender male, uh, <laughs> you know, who has a podcast. We all know it's a stereotype. But we can't be incorrect right we have a lot at stake the earth is dying 
We can't be wrong. We can't make mistakes. We can't fail as revolutions before us have. We can't falter from the true necessity for proletarian and oppressed minority control over the society. We cannot ignore the scientific socialist necessity or the necessity for scientific socialism, shall I say. Sorry, I'm kind of like a little less stoned now and coming down, but we have to study. We have to read history. We have to learn the examples that came before us. We have to study military strategy. We have to learn economics. We have to understand how to go down the street and fucking talk to people. We have to understand how to build a community garden or a community fridge or a community uh, school, right? We have to figure out how to set up community patrols. We have to try to figure out how to take community control of the police, of the state uh, entities, of the municipality. We have to figure out how to <clears throat> properly organize and plan our economy. We have to figure out all of this, which takes study and which takes correct answers, concrete analysis of concrete conditions, which lead to concrete answers. We can't be wrong and we can't make mistakes. That's, that's basically what I'm meaning to say. And I'll finish this out by saying it really takes a whole nother form of importance with the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse is really about to take, uh, you know, uh, set a precedent and get off here. That's going to state, that's going to set, uh, kind of case law, which means that, um, if, uh, say another, you know, far right nationalist, which we're seeing even today, there was a video on Redfish Stream where a bunch of Boston fascists tried to beat up a bunch of anti fascists who, I will say, uh, were not armed, unfortunately. But, this is a huge problem. Uh, in Louisiana, there was a recent news story of a 72-year-old black woman uh, being hung. Um, my apologies to any of my uh, comrades who are uh, unfortunately having to deal with the reality of this uh, racist, uh, nationalist, fascist society uh, and the <clears throat> awful trauma that even just hearing about these events causes folks. My apologies for not giving a trigger warning ahead of time. Um, this is a reality. And Kyle Rittenhouse is going to get off. And the far right in this country is going to go on a rampage. Because right now, the left in the United States is only real on TikTok. Um, uh, it is not a militant force. It is not a red army by any means necessary. It's not even, you know, uh, it, it, I, I've never even heard of, you know, really popular militias. I know there was uh, during the 2020 uh, year of black resistance <clears throat> and fights for black liberation, I know a few of us saw <clears throat> videos of what were called black malicious patrolling. I don't know what power they have. You know, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm not a part of any of these groups. I don't know uh, 
what they're you know strapped with i don't know what kind of forces they're coming with and i don't know what kind of mindset they're working with if they want to stand toe to toe and get down with uh these groups in that way i don't know what that that's not up for me to decide you know but it is up for me to decide how to learn how to shoot a gun um for self-defense um it is up to me to uh capitalize on something that you have to let's take a moment here to understand that in most countries you can't own a gun as a person the military and the police have guns um in the united states you can have a gun in some states you can have fucking a a lot of guns uh i live in uh new york so unfortunately it's one of the more difficult states to get armed in but I will be capitalizing on my Second Amendment right as soon as it is uh, financially realistic for me. Um, but don't that let anyone get confused that, trust me, uh, I got, uh, I'm ready for you, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, allegedly in Minecraft. Wink, wink. Anyways, what I'm meaning to say is this. If the far right goes out killing people, is the left going to go responding? Is the left going to be able to defend the masses? I don't know. In countries like Poland and Belgium, uh, in countries like uh, Chile and Colombia, marginalized and oppressed communities are constantly under attack. This is true in the United States as well. In some of those countries, there was historically uh, anti-fascist organizations which would beat the living fuck out of fascists, kill them if need be, uh, which uh, if one were to say to me, the only good fascist is a dead fascist, I couldn't... uh, with my conscience intact disagree (laughs) shall we put it that way um but is that a reality i don't know is that a reality that's possible to be uh capitalized on i don't really think so unfortunately um and uh with the support that uh, efforts like the Line 3, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, with the lack of support from what constitutes the left in the United States, I'd say that something needs to change, and it needs to change desperately, and it needs to change desperately soon. If you're still listening to the show, I'd like to say thank you so much. Um, this has been one of my four more favorite episodes that I've recorded in a while, so I hope you enjoyed it. If for any reason you care to, uh, you can reach out to me uh, by email. It's indefenseofliberation at gmail.com. No caps or spaces. You can also find my Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook by searching In Defense of Liberation, and you can DM me there if you're interested. If you like the show, but you would be interested in reading, 
some of what I have to say in, uh, say, a blog format. You can find that at my website, which is forliberation.wixite.com forward slash website. Again, no caps or spaces. Um, I uh, would like to hear from you folks. I would like you, if possible, to leave a rating and a review, an honest one, on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what needs improving. Let me know what critiques you have. Let me know what concerns or questions you might have about things that I've said. Um, feel free to reach out to me about a guest spot, about a show that I should go on, or what guests I should invite on my show. Uh, feel free to give me uh, topics of interest, books, uh, movies, uh, theoreticians, uh, ideologies, historical events, uh, anything you want me to talk about, please send it my way. Send me all the content creators you watch, listen to, read, enjoy. Um, and uh, yeah, until I see you next time, folks, I hope you have a lovely day, evening, night, depending on what you are doing, where you are, and what time it is. <laughs> Uh, I hope it goes well. I hope you are, are, Jesus. I hope you all are well and safe and healthy and that your loved ones and friends are doing the same because the pandemic isn't over. Uh, inflation and prices are on the rise. Housing is in crisis. Uh, vaccines aren't being given out. Healthcare is not a thing that's happening. Student loan forgiveness isn't happening. Environmental or climate collapse is not being uh, um, attacked properly. Uh, COP26 was a huge fucking sham and absolutely none of the ruling class governments have any interest in saving the planet from demise. So if uh, you have any interest in changing that, my advice to you as always, is to go organize. When people say go organize, think about what that means in any other context. If, for example, in my office, I have a lot of notes. I do this thing where I write like a page or a half a page of either just like bullet points or, you know, argumentative paragraphs or essays. Um, they're scattered all over the place. If I want to get organized and really understand all that I've written, I got to kind of catalog that shit and get it organized so that I can go over it and analyze it and do what I need to do with it in order to achieve whatever my goal is that I was going for. The same goes for the class struggle. We want to organize uh, by joining revolutionary parties, mass organizations to be better understood so that we don't have a kind of uh, dense or rigid framework of like the Democratic Party or the DSA or the Libertarian Party. That's not necessarily what we're going for. Although a political party, uh, an oppositional communist political party is 100% necessary in every context where uh, electoralism and uh, parliamentarism exists not as a uh, strategy but really as a tactic and not as a uh, end but as a means to an end uh, 
Lenin and others expand on the idea that communists must be involved in every realm, in every place, in every struggle, in every strata of society in order to advocate for, uh, capitalize upon, and consolidate power for uh, communist socialist ideas. Um, it's really our goal as communists and so when we're talking about organizing that can mean a lot of things that can mean joining your local uh you know tenant union that can be forming a union at your job uh that can be joining uh an organization which is doing mass education on covid uh or joining an anti-imperialist organization which is doing mass education on sanctions um whether or not uh that is the only thing you do is up to you and if you don't think that what you're doing is really revolutionary or you don't think that the organization you're a part of is uh you know what you want to be involved in i would personally say that you know there's two things you want to take into account first and foremost are you wanting to leave for your own personal reasons or are you wanting to leave because it is not a truly collective mass organization which is building towards and trying to improve people's lives um, and the second thing you want to think about is is it realistic to leave and try to do something on your own because that's another reality we have to face. We can't do this shit as individuals atomized. We have to do this as individuals organized, as a collective, as a mass organization. So that can also mean doing a community garden or fridge. That can mean doing all sorts of things, folks. So the best thing that you can do is look up in your local area what organizations and groups exist. You can attend demonstrations. You can go to uh, uh, local uh, strikes. You can go, um, you can do a lot of shit, but get organized. And by that, I mean join revolutionary organizations and dedicate um, whatever time and energy you are capable of dedicating towards helping those around you. Because first and foremost, if we want to actually imagine because first and foremost, we have to get folks to imagine that a better reality can be real. We have to also build that reality because most people can't see it unless they can actually see it. So thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, stay safe, stay revolutionary. Peace.